Hey, this is John with Catholic for Rednecks. Thank you for dropping by the podcast. I don't know how you got here, but I'm glad you're here. I was born and raised Southern Baptist right here in Alabama. Then one night, Christmas Eve, 2013, I found myself at a midnight mass, and I never looked back. I love being Catholic. I think it's the greatest thing I've ever found in my life, and I'd like for you to know more about it. Thank you for tuning in. If you have any questions about the Catholic faith, shoot me an email to catholic 4 Podcast at gmail.com. And I look forward to getting to know you. Just relax and listen to a few episodes. Thank you for coming. Hello. Hello. Hi, John. Hey, Sarah, you're the first ever guest on the Catholic for Rednecks podcast. (laughs) Very first one. That's awesome. Yeah, and I've never done this before, so we may have to go back and edit this, but I just want to ask you first, just tell us a little bit about yourself. Okay. Um, So I'm a musician. I'm a full-time musician. I, uh, I live in Florida with my family, with my husband and uh, my daughter. She'll be three next month. Um, I am originally from Brooklyn, New York, and mm-hmm. um, I moved to Florida uh, eight, eight years ago. Mm. Um, so I I've, was here before uh, the mass exodus from the north. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, I also teach natural family planning. Uh-huh. And I have a real uh, heart for for women and couples uh, who want to get off contraception and uh, who are not being given other options, mm-hmm. uh, whose doctors are, are not telling them that there are other options out there. So uh, I speak a lot about that just kind of, you know, on Instagram and and locally and uh there's a few uh, very pro-life women's healthcare uh, doctors' offices, clinics. I'm not sure what genre they would be in, but there's um, a few of them here in the Diocese of St. Pete, and so uh, we we talk about natural family planning there also. Well, how did you get interested in that? What led you to? to all NFP. I, I'm not real familiar with it. I'm a convert mm-hmm. to faith and that's just nothing that ever entered our mind. So what uh, brought yeah. you to this? Well, I think it was a couple of things. So before I was on my road to converting and that, and that journey took about eight years. Mm-hmm. Um, I was kind of in a loose pro-life community. Um, you probably know the the Southern Baptist Convention did not revoke their support of Roe versus Wade until June two thousand three. Mm. Um, they were. I was raised. I was raised fundamentalist Baptist, and and oh. our Baptist church uh, stated publicly that we were pro-life except for. Uh, cases of rape, incest, and when the life of the mother was in danger. Mm -hmm. So I grew up 
you know, kind of loosely pro-life contraception was, you know, use of contraception was probably rampant and sterilization surgeries were uh, the, the go-to. And actually data shows that that they are the go-to now, especially for couples in their 40s. Um, and that was, you know, that was my childhood. And, and all of us were on birth control at some point for some reason. And so, you know, I had endometriosis. I ended up having surgery for it. Um, it. It's always the first option that's given to you at the doctor's office for whatever problem you have. That's that's your first line of defense. Um, and I really never thought of it as a moral issue. But when I started investigating Catholicism for unrelated reasons, um, right around that time, my my sister had a birth control failure. And she became pregnant out of wedlock. And that really cemented my my pro-life resolve. Uh, and, and her too, by the way. And um, she went to a Planned Parenthood out of, uh, you know, great fear. And they offered to take care of the problem for her. Um, and, you know, praise God, she she walked out. And about 11 days ago, my niece turned 11 years old. Um, but so that was a real touch point for me on, on my journey as I was reading about the Catholic church's teaching on abortion and contraception, I realized that it made a lot of sense. I realized that it was the only church in the world who was um, putting these parameters around sexual behavior and around, um, you know, they're really safeguards for the child right? To, to say to parents, you can't do anything you want uh, to have a child and you can't do anything you want to not have a child because the child really has rights. The child has the right to be born, um, to be conceived in a certain way, to be born of a certain set of parents. And it, it was really fascinating to me. I had never heard that before. And so that was really intimately linked to my conversion to the church was was the church's pro-life stance. And, uh, and across the board, by the way, you know, abortion, contraception, in vitro fertilization, um, just reading about how, how deeply the church has thought about these issues and then come to these conclusions. Um, and so after I had my daughter, I, uh, I really just had a heart for women and couples who, you know, they don't, they don't like using contraception. I don't think anyone does. That's sort of my my joke. I I, I don't men don't like condoms. Women don't like the pill. Nobody likes any of this. Mm -hmm. um, and there are some really phenomenal methods out there right now that use really objective data. So it's not it's you know it's not what it was thirty years ago, fifty years ago. Um, there are some some really interesting things that have happened, uh, particularly coming out of Marquette University. And um, I teach the Boston cross-check method, which uses a lot of Marquette's data, uses the clear blue fertility monitor. You know, I have a monitor that in real time tells me where I am in my cycle. So it's not the rhythm method. <laughs> uh -huh. But um, that was, it was just really uh, related to my coming to the church, like her her ancient wisdom about family, marriage, children, the dignity of human life, 
all of that was was uh, a catalyst for me. Well, do you know that um, I was having this conversation with a family member. All of my family is probably mostly Southern Baptist. Mm-hmm. Yes, mine too. Yes. Or a few are non-denominational. Yes. And, um, you know, they're anti-abortion. I mean, yes, they'll they get on Twitter and Facebook, Instagram and get kicked off and put in Facebook jail because they'll jump up yes. and down about abortion. But they also support birth control. And one day we were talking and I said, you know, you're not pro-life, you're pro-choice. And it really shocked them. Now, I had just considered that myself not long before. But uh, people that are using birth control are pro-choice. They're choosing against life. And uh, can you go into that a little bit? Yeah, so I think there's a few ways that we can can come at this, especially with our separated brethren, right? Our, our brothers and sisters, sometimes literally, right? Our, our cousins, our aunts and uncles who um, recognize the atrocity of abortion, but don't see the connection, uh, particularly to hormonal birth control. So maybe I could say something about that. Um, I think that, and I've had several people sort of admit this to me, you know, Catholics, well, we don't use hormonal birth control, but we're using condoms. And so I'll, I'll get to that in one second. But I think that there is a deliberate withholding of information around hormonal birth control. So I'm talking um, the various pills, the IUD, the uh, Nexplanon, the rods that go in the uh, under the skin of the upper arm. I don't know if you've ever heard of this. It's awful. Um, the the NuvaRing, um, the the ring that cups the opening of the cervix. Um, so so those methods. Um, you know, can function in a couple of ways. And one of the ways they can function is that they can create an inhospitable environment, right, in the body, in the uterus. And another way they can function is that they can prevent implantation and not fertilization. So, you know, you can have something sort of on the lines of what might be called like a micro-abortion, you know. And so the the fertilized eggs sort of just get sloughed off. And and Janet Smith does a phenomenal um, explanation of this in her talk, Contraception, Why Not? But um, so those function in really specific ways. And, and doctors are not telling women, you know, you can have a breakthrough ovulation on this, right? You, you may, it, it may work for a few years and then it might not. Um, doctors are also not telling women that you know, this can impair your vision and uh, dry up your cervical mucus and you can have weight gain, stroke, blood clots, you know, death. I mean, the side effects are really downplayed and forget about depression. Um, I mean, low libido. I mean, one of the jokes with the birth control pill is that it kills your sex drive. That's how it works. (laughs) So there's all these awful things with hormonal. Now, what you might call like manual contraceptives, um, you know, that would be the next question maybe from a non-Catholic Christian. Well, what about, you know, X, Y, Z? But the problem is that those, those acts frustrate 
the other end of the sexual act, right? So the sexual act is two parts. It's unitive and it's procreative. And the church has always taught that the couple has to embrace both sides, right? So even if, even if a couple, you know, say knows they're infertile or something, and I'm, I'm not downplaying that cross at all, just to say the reality that um, the church embraces the full consequences of, of the sexual act. And when we frustrate one of those ends, um, it's a sin against God, right? Obviously, that's that's number one. Um, it also separates the couple. And um, I, I find that couples who contracept, it's really the woman who bears the burden of that most of the time. And um, it's it's really the woman who needs to remember to to bring the eat the pill every day or or buy the condoms or um you know go for her monthly shot or put the IUD in which which could pierce her inside it could break apart i mean awful awful things have happened um jason evert i think it was him he, he did a phenomenal talk on the I think it was the origins of birth control. This is well known. You could you could look this up uh, online. Um, just the amount of women who were harmed in the early studies, and they didn't stop them at all. Women were dying. The studies weren't stopped. They just kept going. Um, and so there's there's real problems with it, um, and. So yes, there, there's abortifacient qualities to the hormonal birth control. And then there are other qualities to the, the manual or um, what would I call, uh, you know, obviously plan B. I mean, there's just so many issues wrapped up in this. And um, I would say that Christians of any denomination, right, people of goodwill, um, they should know this. They should have the information. Um, and it's, it's about informed consent. Also, it's about making a choice with all of the information in front of you. Um, studies have shown that increased condom use uh, contributes to women having preeclampsia at the end of their pregnancy. Um, and then, of course, sterilization surgeries, you know, which bring a whole other host of problems into the marriage to permanently sterilize yourself. I mean, on a spiritual level, you've, you've sinned against your body. You've sinned against the Lord. You know, it, it's a form of mutila mutilation. It sounds terrible. Awful. It is. And, and, um, and also it doesn't always work. I mean, let's talk about that. I, I know personally couples who have been sterilized, who found themselves pregnant within a few weeks. Oh. Um, and so again, you know, not being really fully informed of, of the, risks and of the, um, what am I trying to say? The, just it, it not working, <laughs> um, you know, again, a failure rate. And, and I think that it opens a door to infidelity if I'm really honest. And I, I know that's an unpopular opinion, but I have seen it firsthand. I think that it opens a door to infidelity and divorce. Um, I don't think that you can do something like that in your marriage, something so drastic, and even on a natural level, not feel 
consequences of it. Um, my husband is really fond of saying that what sins in the old covenant that brought physical death, when we do them in the new covenant, they bring spiritual death. That is all very interesting. Um, do you know uh, a young lady named Ellen Mitchell on Instagram? No, unless I do and I can't think of it right now. She's done a couple of promotions for my um, Catholic for Rednecks podcast. And okay. Two long blonde hair young girl. She's pregnant um, with her first child. And she, uh, the thing that impressed me about her, she's been preaching all these similar things for as long as I've known her mm -hmm. uh, without conceiving, you yeah. know, but she just yeah. kept believing and preaching and everything. And here she is with child. So I oh, just, that's great to, to send this show to her and to have her on as well. But yeah, um, yeah it's very, um, just for me, from a Protestant background and uh, married with three kids you know, I, I grew up mostly Southern Baptist, and I also went to, um, you know, non-denominational and Presbyterian mm -hmm. churches. And just the thought of birth control being wrong never, right. ever crossed my mind. Never. Right. Yep. And uh, it's just, even it now, been... I mean, yeah. even now, I, you know, just to have this conversation, I'm thinking, Wow, I had no idea. So let me ask you, um, you said that your road began through this and you were raised Baptist. Um, yeah. What, um, were there any other things that, that were drawing you towards maybe becoming Catholic? Um, you remind me yeah. of Scott Hahn. I don't know if you've ever heard his. Original. Oh, well, I married one of his students. So oh. I'm, <laughs> I'm very, so, um, a, a nun that I'm very close to years ago told me to start reading him. And I did. And then years later I married Greg and my husband went to Franciscan. Um, oh. I'm very familiar with Scott Hahn. His, his road reminds me of mine because if I'm correct, I think he started Baptist and he went into reformed Presbyterian. I think that he was a, a reformed Presbyterian minister and then he became Catholic. And that's similar to my own, journey because I was Baptist and then obviously non-denominational. And I think the non-denominational movement today um, is is really Baptists in pants. I kind of joke about that, that it it's very Baptist, but they've slapped on, you know, better clothes and better music and cuter haircuts. Um, but it is the next generation. It's sort of the kids of the Baptist ministers. Mm. That's, um, a good, um, that's a good observation. I'm, I never have looked at it that way, but yeah. I can see we have a church here that's uh, very, very popular. It's called Church of the Highlands. Mm -hmm. And I got a lot of friends my age that are, well, probably younger than me that seem to be very Baptist in their theology. Mm -hmm. Yet um, they don't go to the old school Baptist churches anymore to Southern Baptist churches. Uh, my brother identifies himself as a Southern Baptist. He goes to a uh, pretty big Baptist church in, in our community. However, it's sort of updated and dressed up to be like a 
non-denominational church, you know, with the music and yes. I don't know if they have a light show yet or not. And I noticed oh, a lot it's coming. <laughs> the pastors are starting to wear more casual clothes and right. and uh, be cooler and have cool haircuts and stuff. Uh, Very seeker friendly. Yeah, definitely not the Baptist church I grew up in. I grew up no. at 85th Street Baptist Church where Brother McKee is about an 80 year old man. <laughs> That yep. still used the N word in his sermons. Oh my gosh! Oh, uh, it was just well, it was the seventies, you know, in yep. Alabama. Oh, I know. I so, I was not. I was in Brooklyn, and I was. It, things were not much different up there. Mm. Um, I grew up so heavily into um, rapture and theology. I I, yeah. I don't want to call it theology, but I can't think of a better word at the moment. Um, mm-hmm. a lot of um, Hal Lindsey late great planet earth yeah obviously um a lot of jack chick we've was talked it? about this oh, yeah. what about was it jack van impey do you remember yes. him yes i i actually gosh i think my father might have known him wow i'm not sure i need to i need to double check yes a lot of um peter ruckman the minister oh. in pensacola who um i mean Good grief. I think this man, when he died, he was on his third wife. Uh-huh. And, um, you know, just when I got older and I started seeing the people that um, that my family and I, when I say family, I mean, not just my immediate family, but extended also the people that they were putting on a pedestal. It became very uncomfortable. Um, it was it, it was very obviously there were very obvious things going on that were immoral. I mean, it just, I don't, I couldn't understand anymore the sway and the hold um, that these sort of like street preachers had. Mm-hmm. Um, my family is Sicilian, so we were all Catholic at one point, not myself as a child, but, you know, the generations behind me. Right. And um, my father was an altar boy. I mean, I think my father knows both masses, the Latin mass and the Novus Ordo. Mm-hmm. Um, everyone went to top Catholic schools in New York City, uh, schools that were, you know, churning out priests and um, just the best of the best attorneys, doctors. Um, and in the late 70s, early 80s, Protestant missionaries sort of descended upon the city, you know, and um, targeted, for lack of a better word, historically Catholic ethnic populations. So Polish, Irish, Spanish, Italians. Um, And yeah, and and my father's family sort of fell in with all that and left the church. And um, it's interesting how mockery is such a good tactic. And I think that's what happened. You know, um, the true presence of Christ in the Eucharist was mocked. Um, the sort of stand up, sit down quality of mass was mocked. Um, mass being in, you know, Latin in this dead language mocked and it worked. And I think that, that people became ashamed and, um, sort of started thinking, well, yeah, this is stupid. You know, why am I doing this? And not having a solid understanding of Catholic theology, 
um, this is also the beginnings of the sexual revolution, right? I mean, the the 60s and then the 70s is is really when the the effects of that played out. But the sexual revolution impacted the church tremendously. And so um, you had really a generation of people just walk away from the church and then for decades repeat the lies that were told to them, the reasoning behind the justifications, you know, why they left. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, one of the books that made its way around my family was Babylon Mystery Religion by Ralph mm-hmm. Woodrow. And, and, you know, he went on in 2005, he recanted everything he wrote in the book. Yeah. Um, and then took it out of circulation to his own financial detriment. And um, when I brought that up recently in a discussion, one of my family members wouldn't wouldn't even acknowledge what I was saying. And it, you, at that point, you can't have a conversation with someone because I, you're point. dealing with an ideologue. You know, you're not you're not dealing with someone who is w- willing to debate ideas. It's like walking out of a cave and you're hitting the sunlight. Right. So you right. Point. You, you clench your eyes together, you squeeze your eyes together, right. and you grimace because that light is so overpowering you can't take it. Mm-mm. So you retreat back into the darkness where it's comfortable. Yeah. And, and it is comfortable. Yeah, yeah. It is. I, I remember kind of bargaining with the Lord, you know, it's like, God, I really, I'll do anything, you know, I just don't want to become Catholic. <laughs> I've I heard don't. That. Yeah, I mean, I, <laughs> how far... How far can I go? Um, yeah. And I was in a very Catholic Protestant church in a sense. You know, Reformed Presbyterians do a lot of Catholic things. Yeah. And so when I found myself there, I, I was able to hang out there for a few years and I was very comfortable. I thought, okay, I'm I'm closer now to the truth. You know, I'm not in what looks like a, a nightclub on Sunday morning, right? Uh, yeah. Um a little bit of high church. Yeah, I've got a little bit of high church. I was not ever going to go to Church of England or um, uh, the Anglican. I just wasn't. I, I felt that even how that entire debacle got started, I was very aware early on I'm not doing this. Mm-hmm. Um, but I liked the the high church quality. And um, and then, of course, after a while, it, it wasn't enough because the Lord doesn't let you stay where you're comfortable. <laughs> right. You know, um, something that's funny to me, and I don't mean to interrupt your train of thought, no. but um, these, um, you know, the, the Latin mass, mm. it just seems to draw the complete opposite crowd that you would think would show up for that. Oh, yes. Uh, <laughs> yes. You know, the goth crowd, the, the, the kids that wear the, black eyeliner that dress like uh, Marilyn Manson and mm-hmm. Alex Cooper and all these wicked looking people there won't that's where they show up and it just amazes me that it's very high church yes and the reason they quit the high church was to appeal to the crowd that's going to the high church now. I know I know now I never cared anything about it myself I wanted a a casual church where you could wear um, blue jeans and a t-shirt and, and, you know, hear some cool music and a user-friendly um, inspirational sermon. You know, that's what I was looking for. Right. But for some reason, like if I was on vacation or 
or in Europe or some big city, this is all my life. I would make it a point to go inside of one of those cathedrals. Right. Because something in me was drawn to that. And I remember walking into uh, a cathedral and, and just, you know, taking my breath away at all the art and the majesty of it. And it's funny that that still appeals to some young people today. I think that you're touching on on a, such a real visceral truth, right? That that you can't look away from beauty. Beauty is um, it touches us on a level that we can't explain. And um, and I had the same experience. You know, I would go to Italy and I would go to Mass. And then I would go back, I'd be back in New York and I would, you know, go to whatever church I was going to. Um, And I grew up in particularly, you know, I mean, one church was in a basement, another church was in a storefront. I mean, nothing that could be said, you know, nothing was objectively beautiful. And then, you know, I would travel um, elsewhere and, and it kind of irked me, like, why did the Catholics have all of the things that are beautiful and I'm in something that is objectively ugly. And I'm not saying that to be mean. It's just, I, it's the truth. I, I know where you're coming from. Yeah. And it, it and the Catholics had, and I, and this started dawning on me, especially, you know, I'm, I'm a classical pianist, right? So pretty much everyone I'm playing is Catholic also. Right. Um, but it really started dawning on me. Like the Catholics have the best art, the best music, the best literature, the best architecture, um, you know, and then of course, years later, I read um, how the Catholic Church built Western civilization, right? And it's like, oh, okay, everything comes together. I, what I was intuiting sort of organically, no one telling this to me, I just was noticing it. And then there was this academic book written about this. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that I mean, I watched the Shia LaBeouf interview last night with my husband and it was so wonderful. And um, I'm just going to be praying for this man because I feel like the Lord just got his attention in a really powerful way. And um, and some Catholics are kind of poo-pooing it and, um, you know, well, yeah, I'm happy for him. Like, I'd be happy for anyone who came into the church. Okay, but this is somebody who is a public figure. Mm-hmm. And may have had more obstacles than the average person coming into the church, mm-hmm. and um, and is a, and God can use him as a mouthpiece in a way that God probably can't use me, you know. Right. So I'm especially happy for this. I think this is beautiful. But um, yeah, I mean, just listening to that interview to him talk about the Latin Mass, right, and just how it's not salesy and you know um it's and, definitely and not user friendly it's, no my it's first not. one i had been going to saint mark's the evangelist in birmingham has the most beautiful music and you know the songs and things you do at consecration the glorium is just the only word i can use is majestic right. that i've never heard any other catholic church use the music format right. melodies they use and it was it was breathtaking it was beautiful it gave me goosebumps it made my hair stand up i got literally drunk and tipsy just going to mass for three years 
And then I started hearing about the Latin mass. That's mm-hmm. all I started hearing about. Because at that time, I was working for EWTN, I believe. Mm-hmm. And all I heard was Latin mass. You got to go Latin mass. So I went to my first one with my son. And uh, it's at Blessed Sacrament, downtown Birmingham. Mm-hmm. And to be honest with you, I was so shocked about how unappealing it was to me. I'd yeah. heard this beautiful. Now, this was the the low mass one that's not sung. Okay. Know? Yep. I think you got three of them, the sung mass, the, the, the silent, whatever, the high mass. And the priest was mumbling with his back to me. Mm-hmm. And it reminded me of the guy in the, the Wizard of Oz behind the curtain. Yes. You know, they're standing there with the tabernacle and the, the altar boys, and they're doing all these things and mumbling. And then, you know, you got to go over to the side of the church for communion and line up on these altar rails. for You know, it was completely different. Yeah. And to me, it was a total let down because right. it it just what that dude said he felt like he wasn't being sold something at mm-hmm. the non-denominational church these new churches are trying to sell you entertainment user-friendly family-oriented pet talks right i know and the latin mass it wasn't selling nothing and it took me a while to get over that to realize it's just presenting jesus Exactly. Exactly. And is that enough for us? Right. You know, um, no, I know I have, um, I have some family members who are running a non-denominational community here in, in the Tampa Bay area. And, um, a couple of years ago, the, the community ran a campaign tithe for three months. And if God doesn't answer your prayers, we'll give you your money back. Mm. I wasn't Catholic at all at this point. I was floored. Um, and that's one story of, of many of, of what's going on. But you go to Latin Mass and you have the distinct impression that nothing is about you. Right. Because <laughs> it's not. It's really not. And there's, there's really even not a whole lot of participation. And it's interesting, too. I was thinking about this recently that. Um, so the early, early church, first couple hundred years, right? Masses were closed. They were only for professing Catholics. Right. And so the, the mass was not a tool of evangelization. And I, I find that to be so interesting when I kind of meditate on what was church to the early Christians? They were going there to receive the Lord, right? Justin, I believe it's St. Justin Martyr, right? Who details all of this. Yeah. Um, you know, they're going to hear the word proclaimed. Then they're, they hear a homily and then there's the consecration. They receive communion, but not anybody can just show up. And even as you, approach the priest to say, I, I you know, I want to become Catholic. Let's say you're, you're interested in this. You're, you're going through this, you know, what was sort of an RCIA program and potentially it took a very long time. I think in St. Augustine's day, it took like three years to become yeah. right. A Catholic. I mean, 
so the the mass it was heavily protected obviously for a lot of reasons right safety probably chief among them but it was not this this seeker friendly service because i remember even going to mass as a non-catholic there's not a whole lot i can do at a certain point i'm just sitting there i can't go up to receive um i could go up for a blessing sure but um the mass is really for catholics and it's interesting how you know this word church and i'm i'm really careful how i use it and i know that 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 bothers some people but i i'm i'm just very careful but the word church has so been co-opted to mean really anything. It's very interesting to hear you say all these things because it's like I've been sharing your brain. <laughs> yeah, well, I think as converts, I right, as a convert, you probably feel sometimes like you see things differently. Oh, we do. You know, and I remember um, what I heard. I, I was listening to something during my conversion on um satanists and actually the church i was working at in tampa was having a bit of a problem with um different cults coming into the tabernacle and bringing idols and um, dead chickens and and so on and so forth um and we were just in an area of town where it was it was happening mm -hmm. and i remember thinking during this my baptist church never had a problem with this mm -hmm. Nobody was coming into the service on a Sunday at my Baptist church or my non-denominational church and secretly getting online. And, you know, there's no line anyway. You, you sit down with your legs crossed and communion's handed to you. But that's another story. But, you know, nobody is, nobody is receiving communion, sneaking off with it and going to desecrate it because everyone knows it's not real. Right. And this, that's like, really like dawned on me and and bothered me that it's at the catholic masses where you have have you know wicked people coming to pretend they're catholic and to walk away and i was reading an account of of one person who had come out of um satan worship who said when i was heavily into this if you put 10 hosts in front of me i would be able to tell you which one was consecrated wow and i thought this is not a problem in non-denominational communities. I, they're not taking any form of communion at all, I don't think. But um, this is... We would go months without it. Oh, yeah, months. exactly. It's not because it's not the focal point. The, the focal point, of course, is the, the glorious pastor. Ser yes, yeah. the sermon. Yeah, right. the glorious that, sermon. Yes, that gets longer and longer every week because uh -huh. you need to be hitting that emotional climax week after week with your congregation it's it's actually when i became catholic i realized how exhausted i was um in in sitting in these other faith communities on sunday morning and and i, I was able to relax as a catholic into the mass and into prayer i didn't feel like i had to constantly make up my own prayers and constantly you know have this intense emotional experience or I wasn't up. being fed right. Right. Um, and so I'm, I'm stir yourself up. Yes. Yeah. And I, I know I'm on a couple fed. of tangents, but it struck me that I wanted, I, at one point I was like, wait a minute, I really need to be in the church that is 
being targeted by Satan, right? I need to be there because I, that's how I would know I'm in the right place. If I'm not being targeted by Satan, I'm probably not in the right place. Like that, that was my, that was just my line of thinking. It is so self-evident. It's just, it's logical. Yeah. And, and, um, I, I could I could talk to you all day about these things. <laughs> I, I know exactly where you're coming from. Let, um, just have a few more minutes, but uh, I want to ask you, what was the very um, moment? Do you remember the very moment where you became Catholic in uh, in your heart? In my heart, yeah. yeah. When you said, this is it. This is the church Jesus yeah. started. This is for me. Um, moment. I, yep. I, I sat down on my lunch break at work. I was working at a Catholic school and I sat down and I read Humana Vitae, uh, which is Latin for of human life. It is the document that Pope St. Paul VI put out in 1968 as a, as an answer really to the sexual revolution to reaffirm the church's prohibition on artificial birth control and to um, also to reaffirm that Catholics may use natural family planning and periodic abstinence. And that's it to space stop or pause pregnancies. Um, Pope Paul VI made four key predictions in that, uh, in that document. And I, I hope I'm going to say them right. I, I gave a talk on this a few days ago, but I had my, my words in front of me. But he predicted there'd be a general lowering of morality. He predicted that the pill would be used to control women. Um, he predicted that people would reject the limits of human nature. And then there was a fourth. Can you still hear me? Yes. I'm going to look it up because there was a fourth one. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm sitting there reading this. And I'm thinking every single one of these has come true. There's nothing uh, that he, oh, women will be treated as objects. Yeah. <laughs> uh -huh. And I, and I'm sitting there reading this and I, I know in my heart, every single one of these things has come true. I, I knew that the church was the only church standing against birth control and upholding the dignity of the human life from conception to natural death. And I, and it's a very readable document also. It's really not um, out of the realm for a lay person to sit and read and understand and enjoy. And so I finished it in about a half hour and I, I, you know, sat there for a second and, and I thought, this is it. I'm done. I, I'm done and I, I have to become Catholic now because um, this is the truth. If it's not the truth, then I am free to stop my search and I can go do whatever I want. I can be in any denomination. Um, at that point, I was really coming to an understanding that they, they were all just offshoots, constant, constant offshoots of one another. And um, I could join any one of them. I could get married. I could do whatever I want. I could have, you know, my two kids and get a tubal ligation and move on with my life. Or I had to submit to the wisdom of Holy Mother Church, become Catholic and 
trust in the Lord that, you know, the, the path that I might walk with, with marriage and children would be in his hands. Um, and, and that's what I did. <laughs> what year was that? I came into the church March 26th, 2016. Mm-hmm. So I must have read Humana Vitae earlier in the fall of the previous year. I was, I was reading a lot. I, I was given Carl Keating's book, Catholicism and Fundamentalism. Uh, have you read that? I've got one of his books. Right oh. I'm not sure the, the uh, name of it. And I got a CD of his. That book was phenomenal. It was the, I joke that it was the diary I never wrote. The Hmm. book was my childhood. It was um, everything I believed growing up. It was, um, it was a, it was hard to read because it was really difficult to come to the point where I said to myself, wow, everything I was taught about Catholicism was not true. And I, and I was taught these things by people that I love, but it doesn't matter. It's still not true. Right. Um, Uh, That was sad. That was a very sad moment for me. And and it's sad to know that so many people I love still believe all of this and are still repeating it. Um, And I've gotten vocal with a few of them to really call them to the carpet and say, you know, you're, you're actually bearing false witness. It's a sin to lie about something or someone, even something, someone you don't like, right? I mean, I'm, there's plenty of politicians I don't like. I'm not allowed to lie about them. Yeah. Um, and, and I had to reach that point also like, wow, I'm, I'm saying things that are not true. Okay. So I have to stop period. End of story. Yeah. I had a Catholic friend before I was Catholic, called me out for that very thing. It's probably mm-hmm. the year or two before I started going to Mass. And uh, mm-hmm. he just straight up said, man, you're bearing false witness. It's hard. And, yeah, it was, a, it was a, um, a, a slap to me. What is your, yeah. um, I just got a couple of minutes. Can you briefly yeah. tell me how uh, your family has, um, what do they think about you? Um, oh, I'm, I'm. At- I'm sure they, <laughs> so my parents um, have mostly been very supportive. I, my mom more, my dad's, you know, not thrilled, <laughs> um, but it's okay. I mean, if it, even if he listened to this, he would laugh. He, he would know I'm, I'm telling the truth. Um, uh, my extended family just, uh, they've been vicious at times. You know, it's been very interesting to see, to see two things, the viciousness on one hand, but on the other hand, the unwillingness to engage in a discussion about it. And I keep offering this, um, particularly like on Facebook, and I'll, I'll say constantly, you know, why don't you call me offline? Or why don't you write to me offline? And we can talk about this. And no one has in, in all these years, no one's taken me up on it. And um, it's so the two sides of that coin are very interesting. But I will say this, that I don't think anyone can deny the fruit. And so I, I was joking with my husband the other day. I said, I'm playing the long game. Come to me in 20 years, in 25 years, you know, when the fruit of mass multiple times a week and praying with our daughter 
And my daughter's not even three yet. She prays the rosary with us. She sits in front of the Blessed Mother and hugs her and talks to her. She, Mm -hmm. um, if she's near a crucifix, she's cuddling with the Lord and rubbing his leg and telling him it's okay because she she understands that he's wounded. Um, You know, and I and I know she's still little and the teenage years are ahead of me. That's not my point. My my point is um, the fruit of our lives that, you know, my husband and I are united, that mass on Sundays are top priority. There's not even an option. We got married on a Saturday evening. We were in mass the next day, Sunday morning, um, that were very open and vocal and encouraging to other people to not use birth control. And we don't, and we never have. I mean, uh, you know, we didn't live together before we got married. I, the The fruit of this life cannot be denied. So I would just tell Catholics who are in a situation where they're they're sort of in hostile territory with their family members is keep keep your blinders on, live a faithfully Catholic life. I, you know, secretly my Protestant relatives will ask me questions about what what does the Catholic Church believe about this? Or, you know, I don't want to go back on birth control. What should I do? And it's it's interesting to me because I love helping them, but I I want to point out like your faith community does not have the resources to help you. Like, shouldn't that make you think twice? Right. Like, shouldn't that make you wonder, like, why don't we have these teachings? Why don't we have these resources? Um, But everyone's on their own journey. And um, I think one of the ways Catholic, the Catholic faith can really help people, particularly married people, right? And I say this a lot, you get married, the Catholic faith impacts you within hours of your wedding ceremony. (laughs) You know, you need these teachings on sexuality and children and marriage. And I think that a lot of times Protestant couples come to a point where their, their faith can no longer help them and sustain them. And so they start looking outward and they find the answers in Catholicism. Mm -hmm. Sarah, how could listeners, I don't know, on social media or not but oh um, sure <laughs> are you open to letting them know oh yeah they- my my um sarah graph piano page is public and um i go back and forth with the natural family planning instagram page i do have one but i just i haven't gotten it off the ground and and social media is a, a little exhausting for me so i i only kind of have time to manage one thing right now but um i talk a lot about my faith on my piano page i'm a music director in the diocese so i i've been able to kind of marry my lives, you know, as a piano teacher and, and as a Catholic and, and talk about both. Well, Sarah, it's been a pleasure meeting you all. Thank you. Thanks. Say a prayer that I'm able to get this uploaded good. And, and yeah. I appreciate having you. I want to have you again. Good. And we'll I'll, keep talking. I'll, I'll talk to you real soon. Okay. Thanks, John. Have a great day. Bye-bye. Bye. Hello, everyone. This is John with Catholic for Rednecks. Got my wife, Connie, with me this morning. Good morning. And I'm going to be real sweet to her because <laughs> she threatened to quit the show. And I've been kind of, I'm a hard person to work with. And uh, I was in the Marine Corps and a police officer, so... 
my personality gets in the way, but we want to talk about suffering. Suffering. And we never have understood why we suffer. We went to the Prosperity Church for years and years and were taught that we didn't have to suffer, that it wasn't God's will. Then our daughter died suddenly from a brain tumor. She was 14. And we have a, another son that has had cancer. And we've been through all kinds of crap. So, Connie, tell me what you have learned about suffering. Well, first, I, you know, learned that um, we all suffer. Everybody suffers. And the more I observe what humanity goes through, no matter their faith, no matter their faith, everybody seems to have suffering. Some seems like greater levels of suffering than others, but what's the purpose of it? And um, and even going over, you know, be, having the opportunity to travel overseas and watching people suffer over there as well, it just seems like we can all relate. And going through, we had gone through a tremendous trial um, when I was pregnant with my youngest son, Brian, I was a nurse working on the floor and I was taking care of a patient who had um, hepatitis and HIV. And I got splashed in the eye with the blood when I was removing his catheter one night and it was during the pregnancy. And so we had to make a decision. You know, we, we went through some hard times there and we were kind of hooked. You know, people who are in having those types of challenges, it's a hook for a word of faith um, kind of thought process to to say, hey, you're going through this trouble. Well, we have all the answers. Let me just tell you what you got to do. Hope and help. Yeah, you got to change the way you talk. You got to change the way you believe. You got to believe that it's not God's will for you to ever suffer. And so it's all based on you and what you can do to build your faith and, and do all the right things, say all the right things. Well, who are you hearing that from? Well, we had... John was working with um, a policeman at the time who had belonged to a Word of Faith church here in Birmingham. And when he heard about what we were going through, he said, well, you know, don't you know Connie is the daughter of Abraham and she doesn't have to suffer and it's not God's will for her to suffer. And uh, that was a hook for us because we were desperate. Nobody likes to suffer. No. I don't want to suffer. No, nobody does. And so that's what captured us and pulled us into that movement that is so false. It is absolutely false teaching. Um, because I had a daughter, you know, like John was saying, we had three children at the time. We went away to Bible school. We learned all about it, came home. We actually started a church here in Birmingham. And we, you know, we're very, very gung-ho with the message that God doesn't want you sick. There's never any struggle or hard time to go through on this earth, which is completely false. Because Jesus said that in this life you would suffer. He said, take up your cross and follow after me. And the cross is not a place of huge, it's it's a place of suffering and torment. He didn't say take up your lounge chair and sit with me. No. And so about six weeks into the church that we had started, you know, I was all about confessing. We had learned all about how you make your positive confessions and my children will never die and they'll never and they'll grow up strong and healthy and all these things in spite of what 
we might have been seeing, and I, you know, I'm, I'm a nurse. We never saw that um, real any real symptoms that Jennifer was sick. I had even taken her to the doctor because there was a couple of times that I thought something's going on, and so, um, and he didn't see anything. But the literally the week prior to Jennifer collapsing with a seizure on a Friday and being pronounced brain dead on Saturday morning at Children's Hospital. Literally, the week prior to that, I had made confessions like, my children will never have brain tumors. I literally said that because John's father had died of a brain tumor when he was a young man. Hey, Connie, I don't mean to interrupt you, but you're using the word confession on a Catholic podcast. Oh, okay. And... You might want to clarify the difference between going yes. to confession and what the Word of Faith people were talking about, oh, the power yes. of your words. Yeah, yeah, so, yes, of course, confession as a Catholic means that we're going to the priest and confessing our sin. Which you probably need to go today, not, not to interrupt Let's you. see how we do after this podcast. You're probably right. By, by the end of this, I might very well need that. Um, but it was more the confession part of the faith was to make a list of things that you believe or want to be true in your life. Like you, I, you know, I, I declare I'm going to be healthy. I declare my family's going to be healthy. My, you know, we're wealthy, even if you can't pay your power bill. Joel Osteen and Joyce Meyer stuff. Yeah, yeah, similar to that. Just, you know, living your best life now and that there's no suffering to be involved. And so when after Jennifer died, because of my Catholic heritage, I started to remember, wait a minute, I don't believe this. You know, I don't I don't believe this. People suffer and there's a reason people suffer and I can't always put my finger on what the, what it is because God knows and I don't. But it really did uh, pull me back to a place where suffering happens and there's there's reasons for it that maybe we don't know and understand. But it's a good thing if we embrace it because it's taking up our cross and following after Jesus. And that makes me feel so much relief. I can't tell you the pressure involved in a word of faith type mentality where everything's got to be perfect all the time or you're doing something wrong. Yeah, you can't even get a cold or a stomach ache or anything without people thinking you're either lacking in faith or watching porn or something got some kind of sin in your life literally this is how bad that type of teaching is and how cultish it is people were people were judging john and i and especially john because they say it comes through the father that these these yeah the authority of the father and the family that these type illnesses happen to children they around town we were hearing that well you know something happened. Jennifer, she's 14. She must have been in sin. Some people said she was pregnant. And some people said John had had an affair. I mean, all kinds of ridiculous rumors because they couldn't figure out. It didn't mesh with the way they believed. It did not mesh with the way they believed. How could this pastor and, you know, family man have this tragedy happen in his life? How could that happen? And so it's, it's very deceptive. It's very dangerous because it can rock people's faith to the point they do not even believe in God anymore. And I absolutely abhor it. It's false teaching. 
and I unfortunately had the opportunity to go to Africa and hold women's meetings over there in um, Dar es Salaam, Tanzania, and I preached it, you know, much to my dismay. I actually got up in front of these poor, suffering women over there and told them. It Next door to a mosque. And, it, and what's really funny is I was in Don Bosco's hall. It was a uh, Catholic church. Catholic church next yeah, to a mosque. Yeah, but that's how blinded my eyes were to this. At that time, that was, you know, prior to Jennifer. And um, it was just a horrible thing. It was just a horrible thing. And um, anyway, this. Well, you know, you know my you don't really know her, but you know my friend Amanda on Instagram? Yes. Okay. She's she's a Yankee girl. And I was trying to hook our son up with her, just to be honest. Yeah. And I always thought, well, she's, you know, she's perfect for my son. She's on fire for God. She's got a good, pure heart. She's pretty. She's just everything you would want in a daughter-in-law. And she used to post, before I got to know her, she used to, I mean, she had like ten or 15,000 followers on Instagram. You know, very popular and was always posting things about how blessed she was and how happy and thankful and grateful. And she would also post a lot of things about suffering on Facebook and Instagram. And I was like, what's this girl got to suffer about? Now, this, this is when she was, she was married, before I was going to hook her up with my son. And I used to get angry because I was thinking, this girl has everything in this world going for her. Of course she's happy and blessed, and, but it irritated me that she was preaching about suffering so much. You know, I was like, what the F do you know about suffering? And I actually said that to her once. Not that way, but I said something rude to her, and I thought she would block me. And I used to look at people like Carrie Underwood, you know, and think, man, that's just somebody that God just takes like a Niagara Falls of blessings, you know, and drowns her in his most biggest blessings and they never have troubles and they never have a bad day. They never break a nail. They never bury a kid. And then my friend Amanda, she actually sent me a message one day that she was going through the storm of her life and asked me to pray for her that I was like a second dad. And she ended up going through a very, very terrible storm, which I'll let her share herself. But we all do suffer eventually. We we do, and the thing about it is, if if you don't understand that there's suffering in this world, and that it's it's God's in God's providence, He has a plan, then you're going to be very very unhappy in your faith. And one of the things that people say, well, how have y'all? You know, Lee Lee has brain cancer. He's had it for. Almost 13 years, yeah, right? like a world record. Yeah, I mean, and, and, and that's a good, let me tell you about that too. Because people say, how have y'all managed to bury your daughter and your son's had cancer and all the suffering you've been through? Well, first of all, when you embrace your suffering, 
then you and look at it as God's got a purpose. I don't understand it, but God's got a purpose for this. You can cling to that cross and you can gain comfort from that knowing that even in the midst of that suffering, there's mercy because at the cross, there's mercy. Catholics call it offering it up. Your suffering, your hardships, tragedies, trials, they say to offer it up. And I didn't know what they were talking about for years. I still don't understand it. But even Paul said in Colossians, you know, chapter 1, verse 24, he talks about, it's crazy what he said, whatever, uh, I'm not even going to try to quote it right now, but he was talking about himself bearing bearing sufferings in addition to Christ. Yeah, for the work of salvation. It's a shocking scripture. It is shocking, and people overlook that scripture, but if that's true, then I should be honored. And I actually had... I had someone say one time, we were discussing suffering and discussing why do some people seem to suffer more than others? Why does their tragedy seem worse than anything I've ever been through, you know? And and she said to me, God knew you were the one to pick for this. And I mean, that almost makes me want to cry because we should look at that as an honor that God would choose us to bear a suffering for someone else to bring forth the good, the good work and the good plan that he has. And so when you look at it that way, even though it hurts, don't get me wrong, I would give anything not to have to watch my son suffer or, you know, have lost my daughter. But knowing that, it helps me to bear the burden of it, if that makes sense. If you can know that there's a purpose for your suffering that God uses it yeah. somehow, not just for His glory, like He's some kind of terrible. I mean, I when I heard that, I was thinking, well, is God sadistic? Is He getting? We used. I remember you used yeah. to get so mad when you were word of faith that you actually. Yeah. Is He a child abuser? Yes. I remember. I mean, who, who would do this to yeah. children? You're telling me God loves me and he's given me a, a, a teenage daughter with a brain tumor? Right. That's God's love and blessing? Yeah. Yeah, it made me really mad. Yeah. And, and that's natural to feel that way. But, but like I said, when you shift your focus and begin to believe the truth that there is some marvelous work They that call it redempt, redemptive suffering. I, I love that. I'm an expert in suffering. But I don't know the theology behind it. I don't either. I I, don't. I don't. I'm just starting to accept it, that it is something God uses now in Reformed theology. You know, Calvinism and Presbyterian believing in the sovereignty of God. Now, they believe God ordains all suffering, but is not the cause of it. But they don't tell us. They tell us it's for His glory but they never mention what's in it for us. Is there a, is there something eternal, a benefit to our suffering for us as well? Well, I'll tell you, it definitely is a humbling process to suffer. It definitely, if you're, if your heart's right and you truly are in pain and seeking relief, 
you can't bear your suffering on your own. You can't. You have to have help. That's why I always, in the circumstances that we've been through, I always just plead for mercy from the Lord to be able to handle whatever His will is for me and for my family. And He is so good and graceful at helping in those circumstances. Go ahead. I'm sorry, honey. there's There's just no way in our humanity to bear some of the things that we experience on this earth. There's just no way. And that's where you have to look at the fact that God helps. God helps. You know, also as Catholics, and we're going to do a lot of episodes on this, but as Catholics, we're taught to look to the Virgin Mary as an example of someone that suffered. I mean, she knew what was going to come down on her child. And even though she knew that he would rise again. She was still human. You know, you're right. And I, I sorry to interrupt you. I love that. I, I love that God can use sometimes things that of the world to reveal things to us. And I'll never forget in the movie, The Passion of Christ, mm-hmm. when Mary was following in the crowds when they were taking him to, you know, had him, he was taking his cross to um, be crucified. Right. When she was in the crowds and that look of pain on her face mm-hmm. as a mother watching her son suffer and knowing that, it was unjustified. There was no reason for it. It was and, perfect. Right. It's her it was, baby. Right. But it fell on him to mm-hmm. complete that work. And then all she could do was be present. Yeah. You know? She was there at the foot of the cross, too. Right. Watching. You know? She was watching. Yeah. It says the others stood afar. Yeah. The men. I know. But we're about to step into Mass. I just wanted to bring Connie on. We've gotten several emails requesting her to be on the podcast, and we're going to merge the podcast with the YouTube around the first of the year. But just thank you for tuning in. Please like and subscribe. Hit that little bell and give us a five-star rating, please. And uh, we'll be praying for you and look forward to doing another episode really soon. Bye-bye.